This is Monocle on Design, a show where we look at architecture, furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. Today's show is all about quality craftsmanship. We'll start by visiting a newly opened showcase at England's Harewood Biennial. Then it's off to Mexico City to learn about designer Clara Porset before I travel to Inigol in Turkey to find out about the historic and unsung furniture industry there. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Established in 2019, the Harewood Biennial is one of the UK's most exciting destination design events. With a focus on craft and an emphasis on making things in a considered manner, its second iteration is currently showing at the namesake country estate on the outskirts of the English city of Leeds. This year's show brings together 16 designers and artists who were tasked with creating projects that highlight how quality craftsmanship can, quite literally, help build a better world. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, paid a visit to find out how this can be done. She spoke to the event's curator and one of the participants, furniture maker Sebastian Cox, about their work in the hopes of learning a lesson or two that can be applied beyond the grounds of Harewood House. Harewood is a Georgian historic home built in the 1780s. And like so many of these country houses dotted around the UK, they're trying to find relevance with a new audience. They're very keen that the house doesn't just become a museum piece preserved in aspect. That people walk around and go ooh and ah at the beautiful historic craftsmanship, but that it also has a life as a platform for contemporary culture too. My name's Hugo MacDonald. I am the curator of Radical Acts, the second Harewood Biennial. Second Harewood Biennial, building on the success of the first one, the success that was deemed by the visitor response rather than me, <laughs> with an idea to extend people's understanding of how craft can address and engage with the issues that shape contemporary life. Principally, that's social and environmental progress. We went through several iterative processes to build the concept of radical acts, and what we've settled on is this idea that radical is derived from the Latin word radix, meaning root. Radical acts is about looking at our roots to work out what we know already, what knowledge have we forgotten, what are the practices that we neglect that might actually help us address some of the concerns that we face in modern life. Whether that is racial injustice, resourceful use of materials, the relationships that we have with the things that we live with on a daily basis, where do things come from, where do things go, social connection, how do we interact with each other after periods of extreme isolation, how does that impact mental health. Obviously craft doesn't solve any of these things in and of itself, but it can definitely help address these issues with unpicking processes that don't make sense and putting them back together again with healthier systems. Addressing environmental issues, one of the standout projects is by a British designer based in Kent called Sebastian Cox. He's built what is somewhere between a giant basket and a bird's nest in the trees on the North Lawn overlooking the front of the house. For the biennial, we um, were approached around the idea of looking at uh, how we use land. And I was really interested in 
making my radical act the felling of trees. My name's Sebastian Cox and I'm a furniture designer, maker and an environmentalist. I think everyone's tree crazy at the moment. Everyone's pledging to plant trillions. Um, but what no one's really talking about is what we do with those trees and what they're for. People have very strong feelings that the right thing to do is to plant trees. But actually, I think we need a really grown-up conversation about why and about also management of woodland as well. Because there's a very interesting statistic, which is since the Second World War, woodland cover in the UK has increased, but biodiversity within woodlands has decreased, which tells us that planting trees and increasing woodland cover isn't enough to save woodland biodiversity, which is in freefall in some species. So we need to manage woodlands, and in order to manage woodlands, you cut trees down. So my radical act, my contribution to the biennial is um, to write a woodland management plan, fell trees, and the byproduct of all of that is that you get to make loads of really exciting things and you can do what you like. And actually we decided that the best thing to do with that wood uh, that we felled would be to create a structure from which you can view the managed woodland. The piece that we've actually created, apart from the woodland management plan, is called the Silver Scope. That's S-Y-L-V-A, scope, and that refers to silver culture, which is the management of woodland. And the scope part refers to the fact that this platform is also a, a sort of a lens which focuses your view on different areas of management. The woodland management plan effectively radiates out from the place where the structure is. So that really led me in design terms just thinking about a circle or a triangle, but I love circles. From this central point where the structure is, there are these radial lines that go out and they denote different areas of woodland management and then there are windows within the structure that align with those radial lines. On the ground those lines are marked through dead hedges which are posts in the ground and then all of the brush like piled up. The reason that you sort of compartmentalise your areas is because you need to um, protect them from deer for example once you put the trees in the ground. And so this sort of round structure with these radial lines really connects the structure to the ground which is really important for me. Looking out over each of those is a window which is positioned at a particular angle so that you get that sense of the dead hedge from within the treehouse. So we really are putting people back in the real centre of the woodland management, which is, you know, part of the idea that, you know, this is about as much about, you know, people's attitudes to wood as it is to the woodland itself. We made the piece entirely from the wood from the area that we felled. And it was kind of the first piece that I've ever worked on where I said to my guys as we were weaving, I was like, this is pretty amazing, isn't it? Because we're actually weaving with the wood that was stood there growing as a tree less than 12 hours ago. Yeah, and that was a, re it's a really powerful thing, actually. We have our own sawmill, which is how we're able to facilitate the kind of, you know, taking of literally forest and turning it into objects. We've had our sawmill here for a while and we've a lot of the wood that was cut wasn't used in the making of the structure so we've planked it up and um, we haven't decided whether we're going to sell it or give it away but we'd like the trust to effectively allow their members to have access to that material. That could be one of the really powerful outcomes of this. We need to develop a good wood culture. don't think we have a very good wood culture at the moment. It's based on a very thin understanding of trees and forestry. I don't think many people can identify even timbers like oak or ash 
as timbers or even as standing trees. Most furniture makers can't tell you what a beech tree looks like despite using beech all day. I think we have a very broken wood culture and I think that that notion of like giving people boards to take away and maybe they'll just make something in their garden, maybe they'll just put a shelf up in their home and sand it back a bit. Bridging that connection, being able to take that away, being able to be around this structure in the woods and look out over the woodland as it changes over the next five years. I think those are going to be the really powerful connections and hopefully inspire people to learn that actually we do need to fell trees if we want to preserve biodiversity. The felling of a tree isn't a tragedy but actually is an opportunity. There's a sort of weird thing which, which happens when you manage woodland is that you let light onto the woodland floor and that creates new opportunities for vegetation that wouldn't grow up normally under trees. The reason that this happens is because all of our woodlands in, in this part of the world are adapted to massive herbivores smashing and trampling through woodlands. So if you can imagine what 20 woolly mammoths would have done in a woodland, they would have really, really opened the canopy, you know, making sure that the sky and the ground are in contact and therefore you get that light on the woodland floor. That has created a really interesting evolutionary adaptation in our trees, which is that most of our hardwood species regrow without replanting. So coppicing, which is a method of woodland management where you harvest trees continually on a cycle, harvest the new shoots of the trees, is possible because of that adaptation. Often people aren't aware that, you know, actually it's one of those unique examples where human intervention in nature really has a positive benefit. We didn't know this when we started doing it, but we're accidentally mimicking these extinct species which really should be there in the woodlands, kind of trashing and trampling it. Part of what I really want to try and highlight to people is that woodlands shouldn't be these silent places of stasis and undisturbed places. They actually should be disturbed, actively managed and actively kind of changed and always in continual flux. In the intervening time between the first and the second biennial, obviously we have had COVID. Um, Black Lives Matter has taken place. Harewood was built with slave money from the sugar trade in the West Indies. So Black Lives Matter really cut to the core of the house. They've impressively been on a journey to tell the story of Harewood's origins for 30 years. But really it was important that the second biennial addressed this head on. One of the most powerful exhibits and exhibitors is a young designer called Mac Collins. Mac is of Jamaican heritage and he lives in Newcastle. And to say he's a rising star in the craft scene is um, an understatement. He's really gone stratospheric in just a couple of short years. Mac brings his heritage to life in his work. And when he first visited Harewood two and a half years ago, he had a very visceral response to the house and the story of how the wealth was amassed to build it. And in particular, that was focused in the cinnamon drawing room, which is lined with portraits of the ancestors of the Lassells family who built Harewood and who live on the estate today. In that room, games tables are set up in front of the portraits. And Mac was struck by the idea that People would be playing games in this room. Portraits would be hung of the ancestors while his ancestors were enslaved to make the wealth that was ongoing in the building project of Harewood. He was very clear that he wanted to introduce something positive, to insert a powerful black narrative into a room that was traditionally hostile to 
people from his heritage. And so with that, he designed a dominoes table and four stools and a set of dominoes cast in aluminium, which he's placed in front of the portrait of Edwin Lassels, directly in the centre of the room, sandwiched between two Victorian games tables on either side. Dominoes is a very powerful part of Jamaican cultural identity. And it's not just a statement in and of itself, Max says, that we play together, one culture, one community, one society. It's not just the pieces themselves that are making a statement. Mac wants to programme the table by bringing the communities that he works closely with in Nottingham and in Newcastle into the house to play dominoes, to wake it up and to bring life. values that are embedded in craft are values that we hold very dear in contemporary life when you think of things like repair, resourcefulness, responsibility, respect. It's all these rewords that we see cropping up time and time again. And these are what is baked into craft and this is what I'm interested in with craft and craftsmanship. It's not about a finished object. It's not even really about an approach. It's about a mindset. And the exhibitors that we have as part of radical acts are all addressing systems with their work there is a physical manifestation of what they do on display in different rooms of the house and in the grounds of Harewood too but the message that we have been so intent to bring to the surface is the fact that it's not the physical object that matters it's the problem and the crisis and the issue that it addresses that we want people to really think about and engage with here That was Hugo MacDonald there, and before that, Sebastian Cox. The second edition of the Harewood Biennial, titled Radical Acts, Why Craft Matters, is on at Harewood House in England until the 29th of August 2022. We'll be back right after this. They say you host the Monocle Daily for two stints in your career, once on your way up and once on your way down. It's good to be back. The Monocle Daily is our early evening show, live from London and Zurich every weekday at 1800, that's 1900 CET. Join me and our expert panels as we review the day's events in Europe, follow developing stories in the Americas, and welcome early risers in Asia and Australasia. The Monocle Daily also features reports and analysis from Monocle staff and correspondents around the world, and a host of fresh features taking a wider, deeper or lighter look at the news. Join us for the Monocle Daily every weekday at 1800 London time, 1300 on the east coast of the United States, right here on Monocle 24. Clara Porset was a Cuban-born furniture and interior designer who spent much of her working life in Mexico. There, she dedicated herself to understanding the country's craft traditions, developing a particular appreciation of native materials and hand skills. The result? Outstanding pieces of furniture and smartly curated exhibitions. So, should she be one of the most celebrated names in Latin American design? Monocle and our reporter, Louis Harnett O'Mara, certainly think so. We asked him to explain why. Clara Porset isn't the best-known name in design, 
but her influence in Latin America looms large. Born in Cuba in 1895, she was schooled in modernist design through the first decades of the 20th century in Paris, New York, and North Carolina's Black Mountain College, where some of the founding figures of the Bauhaus were teaching at the time. Following her education, she moved to Mexico. She brought with her the serious design thinking of the modernist masters and used it to help develop the nation's vernacular, collaborating with the biggest names in Mexican architecture and design of that time. Here's Ana Elena Mayen, a gallerist and host of the podcast Conversaciones de Diseño, who's a specialist in Porset's work. The thing that it's really interesting is to understand the context. You know, we were talking about, so she comes here late 30s. It was a decade after the revolution. Mexico was trying to put together a new national project to create a national identity. And that was part of what was happening here. That was addressed in every artistic field, architecture. If you think of Diego Rivera and Orozco and the muralist, that was part of the national project. So she starts really building, I think, a theory of a Mexican design. How can you make a Mexican design understanding the heritage, but bringing it to the modern, you know, as it was the moment of the great modern architecture, you know, the 40s and the 50s. So what she really understood was the context, the legacy, working with local materials, with historical roots, and she saw the need for creating a national-based design, a Mexican-based design, inspired very much in the vernacular. So, as Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo were for Mexican art, Porset was for Mexican design. She incorporated and transformed the international style that was establishing itself into something more, well, Mexican. This came together in an item of furniture that defines a large part of her legacy, the butaque chair. A small, low-slung lounger, the chair can be found in buildings by Luis Balagan and Mario Pani. It encapsulates Porset's signature combination of modern design thinking with a historically informed vernacular taking local materials, such as woven agave fibres, into account. So it's seating, furniture piece that comes from the Antillas, from the Antilles, and it has travelled through all of Latin America, and you can find different vernacular versions of that butaca in different parts of the continent. So in Mexico, we had a version in Veracruz, we had a version in uh, the Maya, in the Mayalan, in the Yucatan, and uh, in different parts in Campeche as well, so in different parts in the state of Mexico. So Clara kind of observes all that, all this research, and she realizes that the butaque could be a great example to bring into the modern, really to reinterpret ergonomical dimensions, experiment with different materials, local materials related to Mexican culture or to the roots, to the heritage. Though Porset's ideas sound quite simple now, they were radical at the time. She was a champion of indigenous peoples and their craft traditions. She was an early proponent of socialism. And she helped change perceptions of interior design from being a frivolous pastime for women into the serious discipline that we know it to be today. 
And at the center of this in her design work was her attention to local materials. The Boutak chair is just one example of her mission, which was to accommodate regional traditions and materials into the international design vernacular. It's worth bearing in mind that this was in the 1930s, around the same time that other modernist figures were busy creating utopian plans for cities made of concrete, a material that wasn't readily available for much of the world. It's hard not to think of Le Corbusier's unrealized Via Radius. By contrast, Porset's creations and her way of thinking about design remain relevant today. She was saying that if we bring together the craft and the industrial, we could have a Mexican design that is truly modern. We are getting industrialized. Don't forget that this is a craft country. And if we bring the craft traditions and put them in dialogue with the industrial, we are going to get a really unique thing. And I think her legacy is getting much alive, not just to think you know, of creating a design that it's truly Mexican or even truly Latin American. You know, just think about the context and design from Mexico for Mexicans to create something that has personality, but that relates to the context and to the culture. I think that's one of her most uh, important legacies and that young designers are really bringing to the present. For Monocle, in Mexico City, I'm Louis Hanatomara. Conveniently located between Europe and Asia, Turkey has, in recent years, become a global furniture player. For proof, we can look to the country's furniture exports, which increased from 170 million euros in 2001 to a record level of 2.6 billion euros last year. Helping to drive this growth is the small city of Inigol. Despite being only a fraction of the size of the other major Turkish furniture hubs, like Ankara and Izmir, which have populations in the millions, Inigol has contributed to 20% of this growth. This is thanks in large to the city's furniture-making heritage and a highly skilled population, something I explored on a recent visit to Turkey. I know Inagol from my childhood, but I didn't know that Inagol was that strong in terms of uh, furniture manufacturing. Yeah, it was known for its meatball, actually. When you are like passing through Inagol, you were having uh, some uh, meatball, actually. That's Kamal Erol. And while meatballs might have been his defining memory of Inagol from childhood, it's the furniture manufacturing which he discovered as an adult that drew him back to this city of 180,000 people some 20 years later as founder of Vivense, one of Turkey's leading furniture retailers and homeware brands. The company, which was established in 2013 and now has more than 100 showrooms, started out selling select pieces by furniture manufacturers and now collaborates with bigger makers to create its own timber-framed collections, 80% of which are made in Inigol. It means that if you're sitting on one of Eventse's mid-century-style armchairs, sleek sofas or dining chairs, it's likely that they were made in this small Turkish city. Located in the western province of Bursa, Inigol is surrounded by mountains covered in beech, pine and oak trees. Nearly 50% of the land within the city's boundaries is forest, and the heritage of the timber industry runs deep here. 500 years ago, Inigol supplied the wood for the Ottoman Empire's navy vessels and for paddles, called peels, commonly used in wood-fire pizza ovens. 
Today, these forests are managed by the state, which oversees the felling and delivery of timber to the city's furniture makers, which first emerged in the 1940s. Now, some 2,000 manufacturers and 40,000 people work in the furniture industry here, making timber-framed sofas, armchairs, dining and side tables, and yes, ottomans too. But the concentration of furniture manufacturing here, Errol says, has more to do with the city's entrepreneurial spirit than its history. Core of Inegal is entrepreneurial spirit. There are lots of entrepreneurs uh, trying to do something in terms of furniture, designing, selling, manufacturing, shipping, etc. Inegal is very fortunate in terms of having this human resource as well as very close to big forests. So in terms of timber sourcing, it has a huge advantage. Also, there are two uh, biggest uh, raw material manufacturing in Inegal. One of them is board manufacturing plywood MDF, the other is foam manufacturing. And also there is a huge logistics network which has been set up since uh, last uh, 40 years. So you can ship any kind of furniture into any part of Turkey now and even to any part of Europe with that logistics network. And while this entrepreneurial spirit, abundance of suppliers, an expansive logistics network is integral to the success of Inagol, the furniture industry's biggest strength here is its scale. There are both large commercial furniture operations and smaller boutique makers all feeding into the industry's success. Hundreds of artisan workshops are scattered about the city with a large cluster on the aptly named furniture streets, which peel off one of the city's main arteries. Nestling among these lanes are workshops where makers are skillfully crafting furniture. Here, raw lumber dries in the sun on street corners and completed pieces sit by the curb waiting to be collected by delivery companies. Larger operators, meanwhile, are scattered throughout the city with a cluster of sizeable factories in a newly zoned industrial area, a 20-minute drive from the urban centre. But all of this begs the question, what's Inagol's weakness? The quality of the furniture, perhaps. But Errol says that it's getting better. I believe Inagol furniture, in terms of quality and design, it is developing very fast. And I believe in the next five to ten years, it will be number one in the world. Uh, I believe in, because in the last eight years uh, since I found Vivance, I see the momentum, I see the quality improvements, I see the design improvements. Currently, Inegol is more focused on luxury products, uh, a bit premium products, but also there is a diverse uh, number of manufacturers also producing middle segment products. All of this will help Inagol continue to play a role in Turkey's quickly growing furniture industry, one of the largest in the world. Soon, when a young child is driven through Inagol, they'll think of chairs, sofas and dining tables first, with tasty meatballs, no doubt, a close second. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's show was produced by Charlie Filmercourt and Maylee Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>